who was always experimenting and, you know, lots of things didn't quite make the grade or, you know, got moved on because he was always looking for what was the best in, in but not just in, in quality, but in balance. I am Susie Menkes and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. I had imagined the contents of an elegant wardrobe, a lineup of clothes hanging in a private closet, but instead of an overflow of high fashion, I saw a vision of the personal world of Hubert de Givenchy. There were chairs in soft velvet and in the rich colours of a grand green garden. I saw witty paintings and particular creations of much-loved dogs. On one side beauty and grandeur, on the other was a creation of art objects defined by their beauty, history and exquisite taste. Hubert de Givenchy, who passed away in 2018 at age 91, has offered to the artistic world an exceptional variety of artefacts. But we're not talking about high fashion, rather the pieces made almost entirely with human hands. The projects, always the projects, said the designer, whose homes and their decorative pieces date back to the 18th, 19th and 20th century. Yet, up to the moment, like any fashion designer, Monsieur de Givenchy included modern art and took his roving eye to objects that are part of a landmark series. They go on sale at Christie's in Paris with six auctions, four of which will be live sales being held by Christie's in Paris on the 14th, 15th, 16th and 17th June. And that is not enough. There are also two online sales which open for bidding from the 8th of June until the 22nd and 23rd. I am in Paris at the Christie's headquarters and I am joined by Charles Cator, Deputy Chairman of Christie's International and we're surrounded by Hubert de Givenchy's objects because the family of Givenchy has entrusted Christie's with the auction of his fine and decorative art collections. It combines his clear aesthetic vision for his interiors, including some of the most important collections in the world. To this expert, I have the opportunity to fire some questions. Charlie Cater, Let's talk about Hubert de Givenchy. The aristocratic designer was famous during his long career for the elegant and glamorous clothes worn by stars of his era, from Audrey Hepburn to Bunny Mellon, as well as the Duchess of Windsor and Jacqueline Kennedy Anassis. But behind fashion, the progressive post-war era couturier was a passionate collector of art and design. Can you describe those homes as you saw them in your friend's lifetime? Going into any of his houses was the sort of most extraordinary experience, and he is my hero in all matters of taste and so much more. So, of course, I was always thought that everything was absolutely perfect, but it was. And he had this incredible uh, sense of balance, harmony, 
symmetry underpinning each the layered uh, look of his rooms was this very strong architectural structure because he was very he had a very very clear vision and I think that is very similar in, in um, wonderful clothes he designed so this structure gave a tremendous sense of harmony and serenity I think to the rooms but he also was very rigorous about what was appropriate where Jean Chez, his beloved house um, manoir um, rather than chateau he was called it in um, the country it was completely different to the Rue de Grenelle. So when did you first meet Hubert de Givenchy? When did you first start really understanding what he was doing and even perhaps encouraging him to buy things? Well, how long ago had you known him? Um, well, I actually met him, lucky enough to meet him in the 1980s, and we had um, a great mutual friend. Um, he used to have these, um, in this tiny apartment, he used to have these Sunday suppers along this very narrow table in the kitchen. And Hubert and Philip often used to come. Hubert liked uh, to go to bed very early because he got up incredibly early. And so you know, Walter would lay on this wonderful evening and da 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 da. And at about nine o'clock, Hubert had gone. <laughs> <laughs> so Walter said, what am I going to do now? But they were the, so that was, it was a great privilege through Walter to get to know Hubert and Philip in, in such friendship, terms of friendship. And um, and then you know he used to come and have a look at views, and he you know he came always to London. And then really, what changed everything was um, working on the sale in '93 with him. That you know was such an extraordinary experience for me. And then you know every obviously every time I came to Paris, I'd see him, and he he was so kind to me, and Philip was too. Um, and he was you know he was wonderful. And then. You know, he used to bring up and wanted to know what was going on and da 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 and 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 bought things and, and yeah. So that, but it was very, you know, I would never dare say I advised him because he, you know, he had a very clear thing uh, of what, what what he was interested in. But he, you know, he asked me about things and that was um, no. I mean, it was it really was um, has been really probably you know, the most important part of my working life. Really, well, she thought she died in 2018, aged 91, and he had a huge collection of arts, including 18th century furniture and decorative objects that um, we are seeing now at Christie's in Paris, right at this moment, over 1,000 lots. Can it be true? Can you explain the essence of Hubert de Givenchy's taste? Is it essentially about a focus on an elegant simplicity, or is there a sense of discovery in each new object. Thinking of the discovery element, he loved the chase, you know, the hunt for things, finding things, and, you know, and every time I came to Paris and he incredibly kindly had me to lunch like he did you, he said, you know, what, what's new? What, what, what are the new, have you seen new things? Have you seen new collections? What's happening? And so he was always interested and always learning, I think, because he, you know, I think, and working on this sale, particularly, I'm very conscious of the influence of people, you know, Georges Effroy from the 1950s and 60s. He, he learned so much when he was younger and glamorous, going out to all his parties and everything like that in, his, in the 1950s in Paris, which was a great sort of era for, for, for all that. 
and he looked to learn, but he never forgot. And, and you know, he'd suddenly say, well, I, I saw something like that with Georges Refouard, you know, one of either the, the Guinnesses or some one of the places he'd done. And, and then he thought, well, I'm going to do it. But, you know, 50 years later. Um, and so he had great fun also doing these things and a tremendous supporter of all the ateliers in Paris, de Cour, you know, the upholsterers, the cabinet maker, the bronziers, all these. Um, he was always in awe of craftsmanship as he was in, in, in his wonderful designs. I'm really stunned about how much Uber de Givenchy um, had surrounding him. You would feel, feel it was too much if you didn't know how elegant it looked, um, the, as we see in the um, photographs. And there are almost 200 paintings. There are over 100 sculptures and more than 440 examples of seat furniture. Well, we'd call them chairs. And in the auction, you can see that Givenchy seemed to love furnishings, even declaring himself madly in love with a Louis XVI fauteuil. He not only appreciated the lines of a dress, but also the beauty of line, with the ingenuity of craftsmanship hidden behind surfaces of apparently seamless furniture. Now, you two were close friends. Did you ever talk about the connection between the two loves of his life, fashion and furniture? I loved hearing him talk. He was an incredible mentor to me because uh, I knew him from before the 93 sale, but then that was the most exciting thing that had happened to me in my working life. And he uh, often talked about the clients and, you know, the way they dressed and, and people like Mona Bismarck, who he said changed all the time, all the way through. He talked about structure, I think, and he did with, obviously, with, with uh, Victor Skrebneski, um, those photographs of on the first floor of Hotel du Royal with things that had inspired him. It's a very good photograph of the bull marquetry with uh, the embroideries by Lesage, links of the decorative arts to his designs. But I think underpinning it was this this rigour and this structure, you know, in something like the, the wonderful cylinder bureau by Röntgen, which looks very beautiful colour mahogany, but it's, you know, it, it's... Not, wouldn't say simple, but it's not fussy in any way. It's very clear, architectural. And yet the mechanics inside it, it, it does all these different things. And to make it look like it is uh, on the outside, actually incredibly amount of complexity has gone into it. And I think he appreciated that element because to make a, a dress or a thing do what... It looked on the outside, actually a huge amount, but you know so much more about that, but, but, but it required a huge amount of ingenuity and planning to, to get it there. And I think that was an element which was very much influenced in his, his collecting. As a person, Hubert de Givenchy, the one that I knew, um, was exceptionally tall, and he was always known as the Grand Hubert. And he was seen as a figure who, in his noble style, brought a fresh grandeur to the second half of the 20th century and yet that whole generation. Does that apply to his art and antique collections as well as to his fashion designs? Yeah, well, yes, it is. I mean, you would think it was quite grand. I mean, the rooms that we saw were, were pretty grand, but, but they then had this underpinning of, of rigour of, of design and it wasn't excessive or fussy. So it did come across as grand but modern. And, it, you know, it's difficult as you say, when you explain to somebody how many things were in a room, you say, but how could it look modern? I mean, how could it look? But actually, because it was very rigorous always, 
and he always, you know, one of his things he said, no, no, Charlie, ça va pas, ça va pas. You know, it was, that was just one thing too much. And he was always experimenting. And, you know, lots of things didn't quite make the grade or, you know, got moved on because he was always looking for what was the best in, in but not just in, in quality, but in balance. I've seen so many Givenchy collections, which I remember as superbly constructed and decorated. But he always kept to an elegant, wearable look. Even when Yves Saint Laurent came along and was daring to design on the wild side, do you feel that Hubert de Givenchy had a certain restraint in his work? It's so perfectly planned, the same as the beautiful interiors. And did that same spirit, therefore, appear in the clothes he designed as in the way that he lived? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely it. I think there was this 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 rigor, but I think he also really enjoyed the people wearing his clothes and and how practical. I mean, he he he, they were designed for life. You know, they weren't set pieces. Uh, and and I think in a way the rooms are the same. They were designed for living in, and I think that's particularly true of this sale, which is you know him and Philippe. It's them, and it's the way they lived. So particularly the, the, the ground floor of Rue de Grenelle, where we all, you and I had the privilege of going, that was incredibly welcoming, but it was a home. I mean, it was, you know, the, and it wasn't in no way a set piece. You know, the first floor, he enjoyed refurnishing it one because he, he decided not in the end to sell it when he'd moved down, and he enjoyed projet there, but, but the, the ground floor is really the heart of their, their life, and, and Jeanchet too. He loved that house. He really, really did. It's difficult to define the word decorative because if you try and use it for Hubert's um, style in reference to fashion, he worked much more really with cut and shape and certainly not with frills. And often his um, skills were to define clothes that created a graceful effect with a harmonious vision. I've been fascinated to see how his taste in furniture seemed to include a wit that we never really saw in his clean and clear fashion style. From your position of expertise, how do you judge the Givenchy style? Um, well, it's very interesting you said that. I mean, I think that the clarity, architecture, all these harmony that we've talked about, it, it, but it, it, it is interesting. I mean, in the sale, there's a set of seat furniture that was in the, the first room of the um, ground floor in the Rue de Grenelle, which was by Cine, and it's oil gilt. And actually, when Hubert bought it, it was covered in tapestry, so rather classic, but, I mean, interesting tapestry, and, and, and maybe it'd been on for a long time. But he saw that it's completely different, so he then had tapestry taken off, and he had this remarkable upholstery, which is in suede and leather and embroidered, and and, and, and it's, it was done by, I think, the glove makers of the Maison de Couture. And it's, you know, there's an historical precedent for it with the mobilier close-up, but it's sort of completely new and, and, and amusing, actually, and, and much more amusing than the tapestry would have been. So, But it also, you see, thinking of shape, it, it makes you understand the shape of the chairs much better, which is actually really quite remarkable. So he saw the line in them. In a strange way, I don't see a clear connection in the designer's work to meld past and present. I think more of a definitive vision of shape, but with the focus often more on overall elegance than with dramatic design. 
As an art expert, I'd be so interested to hear your definition of this enormous collection and his visual flair. It's, I mean, magic in that it, it goes from the, the really very important things to very simple things, but always united by his eye. I think that's the thing about this this collection. And it, it's it's his taste right through, but it's also his his experience and his, you know, 91 years of looking. But it, it's it's that experience and that looking and learning. So you're seeing it filtered through his eyes. And he, you know, had a very strong selection process. Uh, and everything here has been subjected to the rigorous uh, assessment, I think. And it's very remarkable, the quality and the interest all through, you know, whether it's superb, you know, Gugrek, which is the sort of 1750s and 1760s, was something that appealed to him greatly. And the, you know, you can see that's a thread through the whole collection. You talked about the number of objects he loved, bronze, so that links to, you know, goes from Girardin or, 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 or um, through, right through to Giacometti, Diego Giacometti, but obviously wonderful gilt bronze, uh, you know, this beautiful um, moutier candlesticks and things like that. So the metal was in that wonderful uh, Biennet table. So these were all things, that, that's a theme going through. But, and as we said, you know, with, with these 400 plus chairs, it's, it's the line shape, but it's also the fun of having, you know, him playing around with the upholstery too and enjoying that element, which I think was something he, he loved experimenting. Christie seemed to have been very smart in um, looking at the Hubert de Givenchy collections in French and European works of art. And of course, they had a lot to look for because he had the um, separate homes in Paris and the chateau in the Loire Valley. I wonder if you can tell me if the different homes echoed the various elements of his art collection. In retrospect, I think I can see some of the um, fashion designs as specific to a country setting rather than a city setting. Can you also see these things in terms of objects or in terms of the way the clothes looked? No, no, absolutely. I mean, again, that sort of gets the, to the links back to, to, you know, what's appropriate where. And he had a very strong sense, particularly in, in, in Jean Chef, of what was appropriate there. And, and you know, it's manoir rather than chateau. It's not, it's grand, but it's not overbearing. It doesn't shout out in any way. It's, it's just this wonderful, and, 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 and the gardens obviously are fantastic. Very, with the, the box, and which is um, model, you know, done on the design of the cloister of San Giorgio Maggiore. So it's very clean, but has huge charm. And that that's, with these two wonderful big rooms uh, with light coming in on the other side, which was his big room and Philippe's big room. So they, I mean, they had to, for their ateliers where they were, because in the summer after the collections, I think they always went there and um, then spent the rest of July and August there and then went to Venice. But that was a real sort of time of, of enjoying being in the country. And I think he had a very strong sense. So... You know, from the furniture point of view, he, he, I think you can see that he started with late 17th century Louis XIII, that type of thing, rather good 17th century mirrors, and very different to Paris, and quite, uh, and what he felt was appropriate there. And then, you know, obviously he, he, he um, started to, uh, commissioning the, the, the Diego Giacometti furniture. He 
added chairs, but always painted rather than gilded. And, you know, there was all... There's the wonderful chair in his bedroom, which actually is this fantastic chair from, from um, the Chateau de la Roche-Guillon, which is... Uh, uh, and uh, which has just got this really uncompromising sort of shape with a huge rake back and things. You know, you very rarely see an example of, of, a, of, a, of a Louis XVI thing which is so massively constructed in, in a very robust way, slightly harking back to English chairs of the, of the late 17th century, but covered in tapestry. And then he had a, a sort of pair made because he, he liked a pair, so, so, so he had the pair. But then, Amusingly, he's just covered that in a very plain material because he, you know, he couldn't find the tapestry to go with it. So. Well, you can certainly find an amazing garden in the exhibition that's put out for Le Grand Dubert. And, um, of course, I'm talking about the one that is in Paris and that is in the Christie's building. And it looks as though we're walking into uh, Monsieur Givenchy's place in the country. It's interesting that what happened after he left fashion, because I might have thought that he would sort of draw a line under his life and with so many beautiful objects, just to live quietly with them. Now he hadn't got any shows to do anymore. But he wasn't like that, was it? He, he ha seemed to have even more enthusiasm once the um, fashion category had been removed. Why do you think that was? And did he actually change his taste in fashion at that stage? You're absolutely right. There were lots. I mean, he... he never stopped after that. I think that um, I went, I'm sure we did, to, to his last show, um, which was very moving. And But he then was off doing his things. And I think he, he well, as we've said, he loved houses, you know, rearranging. So he occupied himself with that. He took a flight in Venice, which he enjoyed um, doing. And he, you know, always had a link with Venice since the 1950s. And indeed, I think that Taffin, de Givenchy, Taffin, is Taffini, is a, a Venetian family. He was our president here of, of our advisory board in Paris, so uh, more projects. And then he, in the, in, in the 2010 time, he did an exhibition for us called the Galerie de Girardon, which was reimagined by, re evocation by him. So 2012, 2014, did one on Empire because that was another interest that grew after fashion, actually. He became interested in Empire. And then he did the, the, the Giacometti um, sale. But, it, you know, if I rang and said, you know, I'm coming to Paris, he said, well, come to lunch. Um, and then they were, and he said, now I've had this idea. And, um, you know, then maybe we could do a Galerie de Girardin or something like that. And I knew... I mean, A, I said, that's fantastic, but I knew I'd actually got to get organised about it and make sure it happened and you know, get the right people because, you know, he was right on the start, you know, and what he's doing here. He really in, enjoyed those um, and his projects. And then he did um, various things at um, Arroway, um, exhibitions of um, wedding dresses and the exhibition in Madrid. So he, 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 he was very... He, he, you know, and with, with the things with Audrey Hepburn, and you know, so he was always, he was always, I mean, there were always lots of things on the go. Well, whenever I went to um, lunch or to dinner with him in Paris, I always felt that his 
um, place in the country must be in a sort of escape from that um, world of smart people coming to dinner. And yet, I, as far as I understand it, he actually treated, if that's the right word, um, in the same way. Um, his joy of the countryside and, of course, of the colour green. I, I wish now I'd thought more about this when I was looking at the new collections, because I feel that that shade of green somehow in every collection, even when it wasn't specifically one that was focused on um, sort of relaxed country clothes, even so that green just went through all the collections. Do you think that, that he looked out of the window and somehow saw green? No, I think I think he did. Well, my poor department, I'm so bored of me hearing you say, but when we were doing the 93, the catalogue of the 93 sale, you know, and it was, it was at the green room, the green velvet room of which we've got a, a, a humble recreation here, um, but I think, and that was, I think, it was Balenciaga who had first said something about that, and then, and then Georges Raffois did it for the Guinnesses and various people. But um, that room. So when we were doing the catalogue, and you know, for me, it was uh, you know this extraordinary experience, which you from fashion world obviously is, is what happens all the time. But I mean, he had a view on the lettering the spacing of the lettering, the, you know, obviously the typeface, all these different things. And we said, we bet that, that was fantastic. But he said, all the time, toujours le vert, Charlie, toujours le vert. And in fact, the cover was green and, you know. And so, yes, the green, I think. But I think it's, it, you're absolutely right to do with the country because then the garden at Rue de Grenelle was really green and white. You know, it had the iceberg roses, but it was, you know, this vast expanse of green. And I think that was very important um, and then Jean Chez with the wonderful box and parterre and everything, and and green is is a sort of light motif. I'm sure we're making people think. I wish I could see that, and of course they can um, approach Christie's and see whether they can come and see it. But I would love you to indulge in a few of the exceptional pieces in the auction, a few highlights. So you're going to tell me that there are a thousand highlights. <laughs> I know that, um, but I also know that. Um, for Hubert um, Givenchy, the chair was really a, a formidable expression for explaining himself to the world. I mean, I'm putting it in a very grand way, but there are so many chairs in this exhibition. There are more chairs than I've sat on in my whole life, I'm convinced <laughs> of it. It's full, this collection of remarkable pieces, um, which really owe a lot to the um, exceptional qualities of their upholstery. I mean, what is this story? Why does somebody love chairs so much aren't chairs simply for plonking down on and reading a book <laughs> well i mean they're sculpture but i think they also we've talked about different moods of different places and, and and all this and i think they're a sort of barometer going from the grand to the simple um but even the simple is well conceived and and well certainly we've chosen by him but um I, you know and i think seats in french um 18th century or 17th, 18th century have a tremendous um, importance because not just of their aesthetic importance, but because of the sort of ranks and who sat where and da da da, which is something we didn't have quite the same. You know, it's court life, but it, I think it was particularly extreme in in France. And I think the guild system, the menuisier, so it's a separate um, group of people who are making the chairs. I think all that is tied, you know, with his appreciation of French craftsmanship and and the the respect of 
of, of, of the craftsmen who created these things and, and their ingenuity. In the room, there was, it, I was just looking at it just now, but in the room which was um, Bunny Mellon's room, because when we were talking about the country, he didn't have many people to stay, but, but she had a room there. The, the, that's it. There's a beautiful chair, um, which is a sort of um, berger, ahoyes, ahoyes, so sort of winged armchair. But it, it, it's co covered in a dark blue material, and the room's blue and white. But, it, but it's just got this most fantastic shape. It's not incredibly important, but it's just, uh, it's all about shape. embroidered onto a chair and then you told me that um, it was done by Shimoshi's glove maker. Not only do I not have a glove maker, <laughs> I'm not sure I could persuade her or him um, to do that. It, it shows an extraordinary deep understanding of how you can do decoration that is very yeah. far away from the sort of frilly thing that the word mostly, certainly in the world of um, clothing, it, you think of that as something very embroidered, something rather frilly. But here we're talking about chairs, and um, isn't it rather extraordinary to take this attitude to enable chairs to become things of beauty? Yeah, no, no, and, and those, I mean, not only did they have to do it once, but there were six of those chairs, so they had to do <laughs> the embroidery six times, and he would have noticed if it wasn't the same. So yes, no, it, it, it and again, you know, that is such a fascinating thing because there's this famous set of seat furniture called the Mobilier Creusat, which is now in the Louvre, which had stitched leather. Um, and he took that idea, uh, I mean, that's from his original upholstery, which is kept retained, and he took that idea but, but then took it to another level because he'd actually... There are sort of three layers of, you know, but but it's not fussy, as you, as you say. So it is, it, it's 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 wonderful, and and again, it's the appreciation of craftsmanship, of you know the glove maker who could who could do that. I mean, he had to find the person to do it, and then and he, you know, that is a great respect for the craftsman. Is somebody who who's got the skill to do that. Um. I was looking through your books, I think there are six of them, or is it eight, um, <laughs> covering the collection, and it's, it's fascinating and also very beautiful to look at. But I was interested in some of the history, which I hadn't known so well. Mm. So he, actually, he was half Italian, is that right? He was a French-Venetian aristocrat. So that makes him slightly different from what I had expected, which is that he was entirely French. Um, and then he was the youngest son of a marquis, I think I knew that. But he, he must have had this instinct for fine textiles and it, from a very long time because his maternal grandmother and the father, I believe, the two of them, made um, Goblin tapestry factories or built some. I mean, am I making sense here? Were they really involved in the work, this extraordinary work of human hands? Well, they were um, his, his um, grandfather on his mother's side, um, uh, Badin, he was the director of the Gobelin and Aubusson factory, so he was also an academic and you know, wrote definitive books on the history of the Gobelin tapestry. But he also collected textiles, particularly Napoleonic uh, uniforms and things like that. So that was interesting. And then, yeah, the Tafan Tafini is the Venetian side. And, and then he was also... Um, 
they were a Protestant family too, so that was. Um, and people have said to me, "Oh, is you know, does that is maybe the restraint comes from that side?" Um, and perhaps it does, but certainly there is a you know, there's a very sort of restraint, which is which is I think such an incredible part, you know, it's a theme of the collection because it's a sort of respect and restraint and understanding these things and how to use them. Now I'm going to ask the toughest question okay. for you. So everybody is going to be so excited by this exhibitions that come up before the sale and they're dreaming of being able to buy just one piece, just mm -hmm. one chair or likely one leg of a chair. But is there anything that's going to go on? I, I thought today I saw a room in which there were more, I would say, scattered pieces. Are there actually pieces that I could go and buy from my home? Well, no, I mean, that's the wonderful thing. I mean, it goes from the, the, the important, you know, the um, Giacometti, uh, Famke Marsh, Alberto, important furniture, Rankin Bureau, the, the, the Asilange, the, the Joseph Bureau Plat, which belonged to um, Lord Elgin, Elgin Marbles. Very grand but a strong piece of good Greek furniture, all the way through to the, these wonderful range of chairs uh, in the online sale with things of estimates of, a, you know, 500 euros or 1,000 euros. Plates, mad keen on, he was mad on plates. Um, loved plates from Moustier and these places. Uh, so there is the, it's the whole range. And I think one of the, these chairs or pair of chairs or the, you know, um, would be a joy to have. And I, 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 I mean... On the higher level, I mean, there's, uh, I, I love these uh, candlesticks by Gucciere, which sum up, uh, you know, in a way, so much of his taste. But, but also, for me, got a bit of an English link in that they were Matthew Bolton, who was the great 18th century um, English maker of uh, gilt bronze, the only one really to rival French, used that model and made, made um, candlesticks of that model. So, uh, but I think these chairs. Plates, it's, you know, la de vive, and it's, you know, French life too. And now, as a fashion editor, I'm going to ask you an extraordinary question. Do you think that Hubert de Givenchy was wasted on fashion? Should he have spent more time working on homes, his own and other people's? Should he have been an interior designer, not a fashion designer, in his soul? Well, I think it's, there's a quote from him saying that he he'd sort of had two careers. I think the, the, the thrill and excitement of, of the fashion, um, well, must have been incredibly, I mean, for, for, for him. Um, and the unceasing creativity, particularly if you've got, you know, that his mind that was always looking and looking and looking, uh, you know, there is probably a limit to how many times you can redo another project or another house or another thing, but I mean, he could. And I think he, he, he didn't, I mean, he talked, uh, you know, I was probably much too ignorant for him, you know, to talk to me much about fashion, but I think he, 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 he liked the thing of, uh, uh, of being able to create, working with an, a very enlightened client. I mean, he loved people. I, mean, he, I think a lot of his, his main clients and, and people who were friends who he worked with, are sort of, I mean, they had an understanding, but not exactly dialogue, but I mean, you know, he obviously a clear thing, but he, and he always used to talk about their way of life and what they needed for what and da 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 it was um i think he was it was very much um he he was designing for life but with particular he, he, you know he had these these people who were 
very important to him, and that was creating a life, a, 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 a life for them. Not exactly a life, because they had a life, but as you know, a star for them. But then he was, I mean, you know, that's obviously very individual, and that's a good job. But then he was brilliant at, in the 1960s at, at, at you know, marketing, and I mean, he did, did I think he did a, you know, the interior of a, a car in America and um, hotel rooms, and so he did do masses of other things from the couture business and I mean I think he was very, obviously very good at the you know, you know branding and marketing and you know brilliant actually at it. I um, had the opportunity to speak to his relatives who um, uh, came today to pre-look at the mm. um, exhibition mm. of what's being sold and I must say it makes me very happy to discover that the um, that his home Hibaud de Gironche's home is continuing to be a family home so that I may never be invited there but I can still believe that what I have been seeing today will be also found in his very special place and I think that this exhibition before the sale sort of opens up a whole world of Hubert Givenchy, fascinating world. It's something so worthwhile to see and understand. Well, I hope as many people as possible will come and see it and, and um, at the beginning of, of, of the whole launch of the sort of campaign there was this video which um, the team here did. We're, we're, we're using a drone going through the rooms of um, the Rue de Grenelle. I thought, my God, <laughs> made me ter absolutely terrifying. But I'm luckily I wasn't there because I'd have been far too worried. But this, you know, anyway. So maybe they should set a drone through the rooms here. <laughs> yes, it sounds as though it's all going to be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for talking about this extraordinary sale of the objects gleaned by Hubert de Givenchy over the years. And to say that doesn't begin to explain what we're seeing here at Christie's. The extraordinary pieces which he had in his various homes and also the sense of wit, the sense of colour, the sense of amusement, the sense of serious design, all coming together under one roof. But of course now are going to be broken up as different people buy them. But it's certainly a moment in the history of the inside to see this collection. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, I've you know, really enjoyed talking about it. And I think it is, it is uh, obviously an emotional moment to see it all, but all, all here and and looking wonderful, but of course he did. He did move things and change things, and he liked things that belonged to other people too. So I hope people will have a chance to have a bit of Hubertichimanche in their houses. Charles Cator, thank you for your insight, your imagination, and your vision. Les projets, toujours les projets was the principle by which Hubert de Givenchy organised his work, his homes and his life. When Charles Cato arrived at the Couturier's Parisian home in the summer of 1993 to catalogue Givenchy's collection of 18th century furniture, who could have imagined the vast and fascinating auction of the great Couturier of the 20th century and his way of living? With an auction of the contents of Monsieur de Givenchy's two homes in Paris and in the countryside, Christie's has turned a sale into a story. Join me next time when I shall be talking to the colourful Camille Michelli, new creative director of the Italian Pucci. She will be sharing with me how she is taking the resortware brand to a different level.
Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels. Mm-hmm.